From the Financial Times in London, I'm Barney Thompson and this is FT News. Philip Hammond stood up on Wednesday to deliver his first autumn statement. The Chancellor said the strength and resilience of the UK economy had confounded the critics since the Brexit vote. Now he needed to get it match fit for the transition out of the EU. He acknowledged the pressures created by the slump in the value of the pound since the referendum, abandoned the target of a surplus by 2019-20, but pledged to balance the books as soon as practically possible. But what did the autumn statement tell us about the new Chancellor? What are his ambitions for Britain and how able is he to realise them? With me to discuss the autumn statement are Chris Giles, economics editor of the FT, and George Parker, the FT's political editor. Chris, the Chancellor said he wanted to improve productivity and get the UK economy ready for Brexit, both of which were pretty bold statements. What for you were the most striking announcements he made today that will put him on the path to those goals? I think we have to be careful about saying he will be on the path to those goals. The most striking announcements he's made were the increases in capital spending on roads, on digital infrastructure, on housing in particular. And that all added up to a package in the single-digit billions rising over the next five years. So that's his big idea. If we invest sensibly, we can get over some of the uncertainties of leaving the EU and get us, as you say, match fit for Brexit. These numbers are quite small. I mean, they're big numbers. You know, seven, eight, nine billion is quite a large number. But relative to 800 billion in terms of public spending or 2,000 billion in terms of the size of the economy... They're not that big. So when the Office for Budget Responsibility ran its calculations over and plugged them back into its economic model, they said, how much more growth will these measures create? And their answer in words was not much. In numbers, it was 0.1% of growth in one year. So if there wasn't much in the way of grand schemes, before the autumn statement, we wrote a piece looking at the jams, the just about managing households on low to middle incomes that Theresa May identified almost immediately that she became prime minister. Was there anything in the autumn statement for them? There were some small things for the jam. So we saw a small increase in the generosity of universal credit. That's the new benefit for lower income people merging together all the old benefits. That's going to give about £700 million in five years' time. Then there were some other measures on lettings agents and motor insurance, whiplash claims. None of this costs taxpayers anything because it's just really new laws saying other people can't rip you off in the way they were. Very good news if you're a tenant or have motor insurance but not, again, huge amounts of money. There was also a fuel duty freeze, but we were expecting that anyway, all offset by other tax increases. One that affects everybody, a rise in insurance premium tax, but the majority, which were more tax avoidance and tax evasion measures, which affect a small group of people quite significantly. What were they and why were they significant? Well, there's a few specific measures, things like small businesses who currently use a flat rate of VAT, which is a sort of simplified version of VAT, and the HMRC thinks people are basically exploiting that. These are companies who buy almost nothing, so they only receive an income, pay a lower rate of VAT, and it's not offset by any extra bills which they have to pay VAT on, so they're going to have to pay more. There's also going to be bigger fines for tax advisors who advise on tax avoidance schemes, which then prove to be illegal. Enablers of tax avoidance. Enablers of tax avoidance. Those are very awful people. And also a clampdown on salary sacrifice schemes. So let's say your company pays for your gym membership. You will have to pay greater national insurance on that in future. Those are all relatively small. 
But the one very big thing which was intriguingly left extremely vague was he was saying that it, he felt it was unfair that if people were in similar situations but had a different employment status, where they might be a, an employee, a worker, or self-employed or an incorporated business, but actually they were doing the same thing, they could pay very different levels of taxation depending on their status or the way they class themselves. And he said he was going to have, first of all, a review of this and then a consultation if they go anywhere near changing the, particularly the national insurance rules for self-employed versus employee people, that could have enormous changes to the amount of tax different groups pay. So that is where I think we should really watch it in future weeks and months. George, from the political point of view, what did we learn from Mr Hammond today? Well, to a large extent, this will be seen as an economic package because the focus was very much on the deteriorating public finances and the declining growth forecasts around Brexit. However, I think that was part of Philip Hammond's deliberate strategy, really, to focus on the fact that the country is facing very serious times, the Brexit negotiations we're going to be playing for very high stakes. And I think he forced attention, really, of the media and of politicians onto the situation the country's confronted with as it starts these Brexit negotiations. So to that extent, by focusing on the fact that this is serious, I think he achieved quite a profound political purpose. So over the past few weeks, there's been quite a lot of talk in Westminster that the Chancellor has been having some tussles with Theresa May over economic policy, particularly in the light of Brexit. Did we get any clues as to the relationship now between the Prime Minister and her Chancellor? I think the first thing to say about the preparation of these big fiscal events is that we've grown used to George Osborne basically having a pretty clear run at drawing up the plans and Downing Street being consulted fairly late on in the process. I think with this one, Number 10 has been much more closely involved and there's been a definite transfer of power from the Treasury towards Number 10, which is now calling the shots on all areas of policy, including fiscal policy. And that led to some strains with Number 10 insisting there were more measures in the autumn statement to help families who are just managing to get by. But when you look through Philip Hammond's Green Book today, you realise that, to be honest, the amount of help that's been given to those families is relatively minimal, which suggests to me that in spite of the fact there were some tensions, that Philip Hammond largely prevailed. And there's a political reason for that as well, of course, which is that although just managing families may be angry at the moment and upset about the way the economy is working for them, they won't have a vote at a Westminster general election until 2020 if Theresa May has her way. And therefore, the political priority, I suppose, for the Chancellor at the moment is to batten down the hatches, make the economy sound. And if his strategy pays off, then hopefully there'll be a little bit more money in the kitty when the next election comes along. Chris, Philip Hammond is caught between having to save money on the one hand and spend it to stimulate productivity on the other, all the while having to wrestle with the effects of Brexit, whatever they turn out to be. Given the lack of grand schemes today, are we looking at a Chancellor who has practically no room for manoeuvre? I think that's exactly what we're looking at. He's given himself a huge amount of additional headroom to borrow a lot more money. Just to compare with the March budget, George Osborne wanted in 2020 to be running a surplus of half percent of GDP, roughly 10 billion. And Philip Hammond said he'll meet his new fiscal rules if he's running a deficit of 2% of GDP, roughly 40 billion in the same year. So there's a 50 billion pound additional wiggle room he's given himself. And he's going to use up a lot of that just because the public borrowing figures are so much worse. So we are in a difficult position. But I think the big news today is that we're going to have to have more austerity because this additional borrowing we're already planning is thought to be permanent, not temporary. So there's going to be an additional year of austerity in 21-22. And then in the 2020s, we get into the big decade of population ageing, increased pension costs. And so there is no bright, sunny uplands in the public finances for the foreseeable future. My thanks to Chris Giles and George Parker. And if you want to read more about today's autumn statement, you can read our coverage at ft.com. 